And I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16, that passage that uh, Gary read to us a few minutes ago, Luke chapter 16, the parable of the unjust servant or the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, it comes under different titles in, in our Bibles, but it's that uh, portion that we looked at and we're going to work our way through this. This is uh, parable number 19 in our series so far uh, as we've been looking together at the parables of Jesus. And as we come to this one this morning, this parable of the dishonest manager or the unjust servant, I'm sure as Gary was reading that a little bit earlier, uh, there might have been some of you wondering how on earth are we going to find anything good to come from this parable. Uh, at face value, it seems that Jesus is commending a poor manager for embezzling funds from his own master in order to win friends. And then Jesus tells us to go and do the same, to use our money to buy friends, and if we do that, we will get into heaven. And then he ends up with an uncomfortable statement about our attitude to, to money and God. And so surely nothing good can come from this parable, and maybe we should just leave this one and, and move on to the next one. Well, if it wasn't for my commitment to you as a church to faithfully seek to preach through the whole counsel of God's Word, um, as well as my firm belief that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, then to be honest, I certainly would not have chosen to preach from this passage today. But it is God's word, and, and I'm glad that I was forced to wrestle through this portion uh, of Scripture, and I hope and pray that you will be, by the end of the day, grateful that we've spent our time uh, in this passage today, and, and that we would come and see what it is that God would want us to learn uh, through this rather strange parable. And so we're going to do things slightly different this morning because this parable requires us to do a little bit more work in order to understand the actual parable, and then we're going to move on uh, to apply it uh, in the second part. So firstly this morning, I want us to just spend some time understanding the parable, which we find in verse 1 to, to 8. One of the big issues that people often have in trying to understand this parable is the fact that Jesus uses a bad guy to teach us some very good and important lessons. And I think the reason that we struggle with this is that we often think that if Jesus taught a lesson through something, then it must be that Jesus condones or approves of the thing that he has used to teach the lesson. Now, if we have that mindset, then this gets us into all kinds of problems uh, when, for example, in the Bible, we see that Yeast. Yeast is usually spoken of as something which was unclean. Uh, it, it caused fermentation. It caused corruption. Uh, but then Jesus, in his teaching, says that the kingdom of God, as we've looked at previously, is like yeast, which permeates its way through a whole lump of dough. So he took something that was predominantly negative in the Old Testament ceremonial context, and he uses it in a positive way to explain the kingdom of God. We also read in, in Matthew 10 that Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, sheep amongst wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Again, we, we know that serpents in the Scripture are usually associated with evil, with the devil himself, and, and that is true. And yet Jesus points out that snakes are also shrewd. They are wise, and, and the way they navigate life and, and threats and catch their prey is, is shrewd. And, and so he says that we must be wise like snakes, but at the same time remain innocent as doves. So to start off then, I, I don't think we should have a problem if Jesus uses this rather ungodly manager, this ungodly character, to teach us some important lessons, because there is much that we can learn from this story without needing to feel that Jesus is condoning this man's actions. So with that said, let's, let's come and look at the parable together. And we have a very rich man who owns a farming enterprise. He probably owns multiple businesses, multiple estates, because he's not around to, to run his farm. But instead, he's appointed a manager to, to do that for him. Sorry, uh, Odin, um, won't you just guys stop at the back there? We're just battling to concentrate here with the talking at the back there. Thank you. So, so this man has got uh, a manager, and uh, he's appointed this manager to, to run the farm. And this is, this is common practice today in farming. It's common practice today in businesses. I'm sure many of you either have managers who work for you, or you perhaps are a manager working for someone else. Well, it's been brought to the owner's attention that one of his managers, the one we're looking at in this parable, he is wasting the owner's possessions. Now, that might be through neglect uh, or poor management or even through direct theft or fraud. And, and so the owner calls the manager to, to give him his marching orders. But before he fires him, he wants a full record of accounts from this manager. He wants an audit of the books which this manager has been responsible for. Now, we see that the manager doesn't even dodge uh, the issue that he is guilty uh, or that he has been found out. He realizes that his corruption has been exposed, and so now he needs to make a plan to save his skin. As the manager, he would have been part of the upper working class in Israel. He would have had lots of friends and, and other business managers as part of his social network. And so he realizes his dilemma. If he gets fired for fraud and mismanagement, who will employ him? He will be disgraced among his friends and his colleagues. Well, he could get a job as an entry-level hard laborer doing digging, um, but he feels that, that he's too weak for that. After all, he's a, he's a desk jockey. He's a manager. He's a white-collar man. He can't be expected to go out and, and dig in the hot sun. And so we see that that only leaves one other option, which is begging, uh, and he's too proud to beg. And so what we find in verse 4 is that he comes up with a plan. Let's read from verse 4 to 7. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down, and write quickly write 50, half your bill. 
Then he said to another, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, at face value, this seems to be just downright corrupt. But in order that we understand what is really going on here, we need to understand something of the, the Jewish religious culture and the business practice of the day. And the first thing we need to know is that God forbid that any Jew should charge interest from any other Jew in the lending of money or anything else. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother, a fellow Israelite, interest. Why? So that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So that was God's special requirement to his people. Lend without interest to your brothers and God will bless you in all that you undertake. But by the time we get to the time of Jesus, it had become common practice for Jews to charge interest in all their business transactions. So in order to get around the Old Testament law, what they would do is that they would not write the interest amount onto the invoice. What would happen is that the landowner would appoint a manager to add the interest charged onto the base amount that was being borrowed, and then the manager would simply write out a single amount on the debt slip saying, you owe my master X amount of money or X amount of wheat or oil or whatever it was. And, and that single amount included the hidden interest which had been charged. Now, this was acceptable practice of the day. Interest was being charged, and it was never displayed on the invoice as interest so that they were not breaking the law of God. And so the commentators suggest that what was going on here was in actual fact very clever, a very shrewd move on the part of this manager. You see, he knew that by law, according to God's law, the master's debtors only actually owed the original amount that was borrowed because God said you can't charge interest. But then he had written up all the accounts to include interest. That was his job. That's how the master made his money. And so in order now to win friends and to influence people, he comes up with this very clever plan to save his skin. He calls the debtors in one by one and he asks them how much do they owe? And they, in each case, reply with the full amount, 100 measures of oil, 100 measures of wheat. And then he tells them, as he was authorized to do in his position as a manager, to take their bill and to reduce the amount by removing the interest. Now, these were significantly large debts. And so the amount of interest that he wrote off was large. It was significant, resulting in, in these debtors now owing this manager big time for having re reduced their bills by such an amount. The reason this was such a clever scheme is because in doing what he was doing, the manager could not be punished by law because the master was never supposed to have charged interest in the first place. And so the owner could not drag this manager off to court 
for having reduced his debt to the lenders because the, man, the, the master was actually breaking the law in the first place by having charged interest. And so this unrighteous manager, in the process, he makes himself a whole bunch of new friends who will welcome him into their homes the day he gets fired. And so we read a very surprising thing in verse 8. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In other words, it takes a crook to know a crook. And in this case, it takes a crook to admire an even better crook. The master who had dodged the law of God in the first place had now been outwitted and outplayed by his manager, and he had to acknowledge and commend this dishonest man for his shrewdness. So, so that's the parable, and, and hopefully we, we understand it a little bit better now. But, but the real question we should be asking is this. What is Jesus trying to teach us through this story? Even though the corrupt master commends the corrupt manager for his wheeling and dealing, surely Jesus does not condone this type of scheming and conniving. And so what are we meant to learn from the parable this morning? Well, let's move on in the second place to see the lessons that Jesus is wanting us to learn from this parable. And in the first place, we see some lessons about commitment in, in verse 8b. Let's just read together the first lesson in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's the end of the parable. And here Jesus now starts his explanation. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so the first lesson is a lesson about our commitment. Jesus is using this intriguing parable to show us how committed the unbelievers of this world, the sons of this world, are in dealing with one another. Just look at the length that both the master and the manager had gone to in order to get around the laws of God so that they could maximize the profits for themselves or at least save their own hides from, from trouble. The manager especially, look at how he analyzed the situation. He weighs up all the options, and then he went to great lengths to do what it takes to not only get fired without further criminal charges, but to win the favor of a whole bunch of people who would then welcome him into their homes. This is real commitment, says Jesus, shown by this guy in order to preserve himself and his image and his income. When we look at the great lengths he went to, we realize that he did all of this for the things of this world which are fleeting. They're passing away, things that do not last. They are but a vapor. They, they're here today, and, and they are gone tomorrow. Image, reputation, retirement planning, networking, financial security, you name it, this manager was committed to do whatever it took to make sure that he had those things, even if it meant being dishonest and unrighteous in the process. Now, says Jesus, the first lesson that we are meant to learn as believers, as the, the sons of light, he calls us the sons of light, is that we show far less commitment and wisdom in dealing with the people of God and the things of the kingdom of God than our wicked generation does in dealing with the people and the things of this world. 
In other words, as one commentator says, the unbelieving are more clever, more energetic in taking care of their temporal, this worldly well-being than the believers are in taking care of their spiritual, eternal well-being. If the sons of this age will do all that they do for merely temporal ends, then how much more ought we to show energy and focus and zeal and wisdom and decisiveness for eternal and everlasting means? If others show so much energy for their comfort and luxury and names, how much more ought we to show the same commitment for our souls and the glory of God? John Calvin summarizes this point by saying, heathen and worldly men are more industrious and clever in taking care of the ways and the means of this fleeting world than God's children are in caring for the heavenly and eternal life. Jesus reproves our worse than spineless laziness that we do not have the same eye to the future that the heathen has to feathering their nests in this world. And so Jesus is using this parable to show us how committed this dishonest manager was to preserving himself in this life, which will soon end in death. And he's asking us this morning, how committed are we to preserving our souls for the eternal heavenly life, which is to come? That's the first lesson. The second lesson then that Jesus teaches here are lessons about community. We see this in verse 9. And here's another verse which I think many people have totally misunderstood or misapplied. Verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, I know many of you have the, the NIV translation, and the NIV is really bad in verse 9. Um, it says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The reason the NIV is bad here is because it seems to imply that by using your money to make friends, this act will result in you getting into heaven. But the Greek does not say, you will be welcomed into heaven if you do this. It says, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. This is clear in the ESV as well as in the Christian Standard Bible. So, so who are the they who will welcome you into heaven? Well, some people have said that they must surely be the angels. They will welcome you into heaven. Others have said that they refers to the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think that's avoiding the simple reading of the verse as the application of this parable. Jesus is saying quite simply, use your worldly wealth to make friends so that when your money, when all the things of this world are gone, they, the friends that you have made through your money, they will welcome you into heaven. Now this is confirmed for us by verse four. Just look back at verse four which uses the exact same Greek verb and tense as verse nine. Verse four, the manager says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. They may welcome me into their homes. It's exactly the same phrase. 
And so in verse 9, Jesus is drawing now a direct parallel application from the parable. Just as the manager used his position to win friends who would welcome him into their homes, so we, as sons of light, are to use our earthly wealth to win friends who will welcome us into heaven. Now, what on earth does that mean? What Jesus says to us here is a profound statement about the value of Christian community, of seeing our lives in community with other Christians and seeking to use all our money and all the worldly wealth and resources that we've been given to both grow and bless the kingdom of God, the community of God's people. Just look a little bit closer at this. Jesus says, use your money to make friends. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's not speaking here about friends who just want a free ride of parties and entertainment and and eating out off the back of your money. How do we know that? Well, the very previous parable was the parable of the prodigal son. And we saw what kind of um, life, what kind of outcome that mindset led of using money to win earthly friends was a disaster. No, Jesus says, use your money to win friends who will welcome you into heaven. So what kind of friends will welcome you into heaven? There can only be one possibility. Saved friends, Christian friends, friends who've responded to the gospel through your generosity and who've gone to heaven before you. And so this has an amazingly simple and yet profound application for us this morning with regards to our attitude towards our money. Are we using our money to win friends and influence people for Christ? Not are we using our money to win friends and influence people for ourselves, for for our benefit as the wicked manager had done, but are we using our worldly wealth to reach people with the gospel? to show them the the generosity of Christ through our caring, through our loving them, so that through our relationship with them in person or in kind, in, in any practical way, they are being brought to salvation. They are experiencing the fullness of what it means to be in the community of God's people. These are the only friends which will last into eternity, and these are the only friends who will welcome you into heaven one day. The friends you have made in this life who came to hear about Jesus, who came to experience Jesus in a more full way because you used the resources that God had given to you to be a blessing to them as you reached out to them with the good news of Jesus. And so he has a very real question for you and me to consider this morning. What kind of welcoming party will there be for you in heaven one day? What kind of welcoming party will there be for for me in heaven one day? How many people has your life impacted with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ through the use of your worldly wealth? What is your attitude to money and and your attitude to growing and and multiplying the community of God's people through the the resources that that you have been given? 
See, Jesus is making a very strong point here. All your money, all your worldly wealth, all your retirement annuities and investment strategies and and property and, and shares, it's all temporary. You cannot take it with you. It will fail you. It will all be gone one day. But, says Jesus, you can use it wisely now while you still have breath. You can use it wisely to reach the many millions of spiritually lost people across the earth with the gospel because those friendships made through the sharing of the gospel will continue to all eternity. In Matthew 6 verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and COVID destroy and thieves break in and steal But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So do you treasure Christian community? It's a simple question. Here at Honeyridge, do you treasure the people of God? Do you treasure extending the kingdom of God through evangelism, through church planting, through missions? How appropriate was it, this was not orchestrated, that Nick emailed me the video about home missions yesterday for us to view in the service today. God has given us so many opportunities at Honey Ridge to treasure Christian community to use our resources in order to value Christian community? Do you value every soul who will welcome you into heaven one day because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through your generosity? Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. And then thirdly, Jesus teaches us some lessons about character. He's given us lessons about commitment to the eternal things, about community and our treasuring the community of God's people. But thirdly, from this parable of this unjust or dishonest manager, Jesus teaches us a number of things about character. And I think here Jesus gets very practical, very down to earth, because ultimately everything in our Christian life and walk with the Lord and how we handle our marriages, how we handle our children, how we handle our careers and and how we handle hardships and blessings, it all comes down to Christian character. Are we really becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in our character, in our inner man, in the inner woman? Well, Jesus says a few things about Christian character in these last few verses, in verses 10 uh, to 13. Firstly, he says that godly character is developed in the little things. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Faithfulness means honesty, it means trustworthiness, reliability, diligence. And Jesus says that the person who is faithful in the little, average, mundane, ordinary things of life, 
that person will also be faithful in the bigger, much more important things of life. But the one who is dishonest and deceitful and conniving and scheming in the little things will also be dishonest and unfaithful in the bigger, more important things. So our character in the little things, the way we handle our money, the way we do business, uh, the way we handle our friendships, the way we use our speech, the way we make our beds in the morning and pack the dishwasher and use the office stationery. These things, these little things, they reveal our character. And the way we handle these little things will be the same way we handle the big things. Now, this is where many people go wrong today. Many people think, well, it doesn't matter if I cheat in a little class test. It doesn't matter if I, if I don't give back the wrong change at the shop. It doesn't matter if I tell a little white lie to, to cover something up. Because these are, are little things, and they really don't matter. But I would never, ever cheat in my final exam. I would never cheat on my tax return or steal money from my employer. I would never tell a lie that would hurt anyone or cheat on my wife. But that's where you are wrong, says Jesus. Because Christian character is developed in the little things. And it is ultimately expressed in the bigger things. In the seemingly irrelevant details of life where no one is looking, that is where your character is being formed and so he says, when you've developed a godly character in the way that you handle the little things, the secret things, you will then handle the big things in the same way. So young people, some here this morning, um, I want to especially address you for a moment, but, but older people, please just listen in because this applies to all of us. Terry Johnston, in his commentary on this portion, says the following, young people, begin now to practice integrity, always speak the truth, always practice honesty, and never cheat. What we do in the small things when no one is looking reveals our true character and shapes it. Tithe every cent that you make now, and you'll probably tithe with integrity and be less covetous when you are an adult. Honor the whole Sabbath now by refraining from work and devoting yourself to worship and service, and you'll be less likely to cheat God in other areas of life later. Befriend the awkward new boy in Sunday school now, and you'll be less selfish, less self-centered, less self-absorbed towards people later. Avoid immoral images and language now on the internet, television, movies, music, and you'll be less likely to indulge in immorality later. Dress modestly and discreetly now in the fifth, sixth, or seventh grade of school, and you'll be less likely to yearn to put your body on sensual display in your teens and twenties. Do you see how Jesus is drawing a, a positive lesson here from the negative example of this manager? He proved to be unfaithful and unreliable in the little duties of running the farm so that eventually when it caught up with him, he was so comfortable in his corruption that he carried on doing it in the much bigger things. 
your and my Christian character is developed in the little things. But then Jesus goes on to say that character, godly character, is also tested in the secular things. Verse 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the worldly wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own? Now here Jesus makes two very simple statements which contrast the unrighteous or worldly wealth with eternal things. Jesus is basically saying that the wealth of this world, it's fake. It's counterfeit. It has no real value. It's, it's all a sham ultimately because it will not last. It's, it's corrupt and it corrupts. So the application is profoundly simple. If you have proven to be unfaithful in your use of this world's fake, temporary, counterfeit wealth, who will ever entrust you with true riches? Let me illustrate this. I have a software program on my computer called the Flight Simulator, uh, which allows me to fly whatever airplane or helicopter I want to fly using my own remote control. And I can hone my skills and I can practice taking off and landing and whatever else I need to practice. But then in my workshop, I have the real thing. An airplane, a helicopter with wings and motors and propellers. So before I will ever allow Daniel to fly the real thing, the valuable thing, the true thing, the true airplane, he needs to prove himself faithful in the fake thing, in the simulator. He needs to show me that he's learned the skills to, to take off responsibly and conservatively, to fly safely, and then to land again. And once he's proven himself faithful on the simulator, then and then only can he be trusted with the real McCoy. What is Jesus saying to us? He's saying to us that all the wealth of this world all the power and the riches and the fame and the popularity, these things are not true riches. They are simply the training ground. This world is the simulation exercise. And by the way, look at verse 12. These things are not even your own. They are entrusted to you. They all belong to me, says God, and I'm lending them to you as a steward for you to manage so that I can see and test if you can be trusted with that which is of true value, that which is of ultimate value, that which will one day become your own. And so if you are not being faithful in the fake and the temporary things of this world, if you are not faithful in the things which currently belong to God, that He has placed into your care, why would God ever entrust you with true riches? Why would God ever entrust you with eternal things, riches which will be yours for all of eternity? And so what Jesus is saying is very challenging to us today. Are we faithful to God in the secular things of life? Your attitude to money and relationships and your job and house, your cars, whatever else may be the things of this world, are you faithful in the secular things? 
And then finally, Jesus says to us that our Christian character is proven in the heart things. That's verse 13. He ends this parable saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this really is where Jesus, once again, as in all of his parables, he divides us into one of two groups this morning. Where is your heart today? What is your treasure? For where your treasure is, there you will find your heart. And Jesus says this so simply, the things we treasure most reveal the true spiritual state of our hearts. So do you treasure and serve God as your Lord and your master? Or do you treasure and serve money, the things of this world, as your Lord and your master? And once again, Jesus is dividing us here into these two groups is very uncomfortable. Isn't there a category kind of in between for people who serve both Jesus and money? Or what about a category for those who love Jesus mostly? and only money a little. That would be much easier, wouldn't it be? Jesus' final statement is a clear, categorical statement of truth. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will end up hating the one and loving the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is such a far cry from so much of what we hear under the banner of Christianity today. As we watch television, as we read popular Christian books, we are told, in actual fact, that if you come to Jesus, if you become a Christian, your faith in God will become the means by which you will become rich. We are told that that God wants to bless us with more health and wealth than we will know what to do with. So come to Jesus and receive his wealth deposited directly into your bank account, usually within seven days. I've heard it. This is not what Jesus is saying at all. Christianity is not about receiving the fake, temporary, fleeting things of this world into our bank accounts. Christianity is about spending what is in our bank accounts to win friends for the kingdom. The way of Jesus is not about devoting your life and your career and your investments and your earthly fame and security for yourself. It's about committing all of your life to finding your security and your joy and your eternal relationships in Jesus and the kingdom of God. A.W. Pink wrote this more than 100 years ago. He says, "These these two are diametrically opposed, God and money. One commands you to walk by faith, the other to walk by sight. One to be humble, the other to be proud. One to set your affection on the things above, the other to set them on the things of the earth. One to look at the things that are unseen and eternal, the other to look at things that are seen and temporal. One to have your conversation in heaven, the other to cleave to the dust. One to be worried for nothing, the other to be all anxiety. One to be content with what things that you have, the other to enlarge your desires. One to be ready to distribute, the other to withhold. 
One to look at the things of others, the other to look only at the things of yourself. One to seek happiness in the creator, the other to seek happiness in the creature. Is it not plain, says Ryle, you cannot serve two such masters. So as we close this morning, what is Jesus saying to you about your commitment to him this morning, your commitment to him versus your commitment to the things of this world? I know many of you are deeply committed to the things of this world because I see how hard you work. I see the long hours you put in at the offices. I see that you are never available to your children. You're never available to the things of God. You are committed to the things of this world. How much more should we be committed to the things of eternity? What is Jesus saying to you about your heart for the community of God's people? What are you doing with the resources that God has loaned to you in order to win friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is Jesus saying to you about your character? Does it stand up to the test of faithfulness in the little things, in the, the secular things, so that God can start to dish out to you real responsibility, the real privilege, the real treasure of eternal things? Or does your heart reveal this morning that indeed you cannot serve two masters and the one you are serving right now is not God? Well, the very devout religious leaders of the day were listening to Jesus. And look at their response in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And, they said to, and, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. May God help us to go home today and examine our hearts before him. That we will no longer, as the Pharisees did, justify ourselves before men. But as God reveals us our hearts, that we would repent of our sin that we would seek only to exalt in those things in our lives which are praiseworthy and honorable and eternal in God's sight and look to God to provide for all our needs. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to come before you this morning and acknowledge that as your word has shone a light into our own hearts this morning individually and, and even as a church, we recognize that we all fall short in so many ways. Lord, we must confess this morning that for so many of us, we've been playing games with the things of this world. And as we've considered this unjust manager today, many of us have to acknowledge that our loyalty and commitment has been to the things of this world and not to you, and not to the things of eternal value that will last. So we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to confess these sins to you, confess these wrong priorities to you, that you would help us as we consider all that we have in Christ, that we have been blessed in Christ in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, that we truly would find all our hope in Jesus Christ in life 
and in death. Lord, may we not be those who are fooled to think that we can live in this world with ourselves at the center and then die one day with you on the throne. May you transform the way we see this world, the way we see everything that you have blessed us with as simply that which is meant to be a means of extending and representing the grace of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Lord, we need your help in this. We need it in our own lives, in our marriages, in our families, and we need it here in Honey Ridge as a church, that we would be a church that is so filled with a love for Jesus Christ that nothing would be too great to embark to see your name being glorified here at Honey Ridge and in our community and to the ends of the world. For only then are we truly living out the purpose for which you have saved us. So help us, we pray, Lord, and may you be at work in us through your word today. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.